today's reading comes from Mark 8, 34 through 38. Calling the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much that as the years change, that you are the thing that remains true and the same. I pray that our hearts and minds would be open to the words Daniel has to say, Lord. Um, in your name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Well, Theo, uh, you must have done well last week because you've doubled the size of the congregation from what, I was, uh, from, from what I was told while I was out preaching at another church last week. Uh, in case we haven't met, my name's Daniel. I am one of the pastors here um, at Aletheia Church. This morning, I would like us um, to begin our time together to just take a moment and reflect on the one who it is that has spoken the words that Danielle just read for us from Mark chapter 8. Jesus, the creator of all life, the one who spoke all creation into existence, the one who knew you in your mother's womb before he spoke any of this that we see into creation. The Alpha and the Omega. The Sustainer of all things. The Living Word. The Way. The Truth. The Life. The King of Kings. The Lord of Lords. The Son of Man. The son of David, true wisdom, wonderful counselor, mighty God. This is what the word of God declares to be true about Jesus, the one who speaks to us from Mark chapter 8. This that I have just described to you is who I and Aletheia Church believe Jesus to be. And we believe because of this, he is worthy of our worship and our attention as we contemplate the words that have been recorded us in the Gospel of Mark this morning. If you have your own copy of the scriptures, print or digital, you can turn to Mark chapter 8, 34 to 38, or you can follow along on the screen as well. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And for a moment, I want us just to contemplate and dwell on the words of Jesus in the second half of verse 34. The creator and sustainer of all things, the king of kings and the lord of lords says, if anyone would come after me. This is Jesus calling the disciples and the crowd to discipleship. This is Jesus calling to the people to become like him. And so he says, if anyone would come after me, let him or her 
deny himself. Let him or her take up his cross. Let him or her follow me. What I would love for you to do in this moment is just allow the moment, allow the weight of this moment, the weight of those words to rest upon your soul and do their good work. For this is not a trivial moment in life that we have gathered together this morning, but one of great consequence and seriousness. Eternity is in the balance for many of you. The course and direction of your lives will be greatly determined in how you respond to these words from Jesus this morning. Can you say that your life looks in the following of Jesus that you are denying yourself to follow him? Can you say that you have taken up your cross to follow Jesus? Can you say with 100% absolute certainty that you are following Jesus? I want you to take the next 30 seconds to a minute and just ponder these words up on the screen from Matthew 8, 34. And answer in your own mind, in your own heart, Jesus' call to you this morning. Father, my prayer is that we would hear the words of your Son this morning. I pray that they would penetrate beyond all of our pain, beyond all of our hurt, beyond all of our distraction, beyond anything that would call for our attention this morning. I pray that your Spirit would be so present in this moment and in this room in each and every person's heart and life. Father, I pray that he would bind the enemy and his servants and their desires, works, and effects and any, anything that they may have that would pull someone's heart and mind away from the words of Jesus this morning. I pray that they would be bound in the name of Jesus. And I pray that these words that I speak would be heard and they would cause great movement, great disruption, in our hearts, in our lives, for the glory of your name forevermore. Amen. <clears throat> the Gospel of Mark opens with these words. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is writing this Gospel to an audience we believe to be centered around Rome. A primarily Gentile audience. So in writing this, he wants his audience to know from the very beginning, I want you to understand the point I am trying to prove. That every word that is going to appear from my pen in this manuscript that has been faithfully handed down to you has one point and one point alone. And it is to prove and to exclaim that Jesus Christ Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God and this is the good news. Everything that happens from the very first verse in Mark to chapter 8 sets out to prove this fact. Every word that Jesus speaks, every person that Jesus heals, every place that he goes is set out with one fact that Mark is trying to prove that Jesus is the Christ that he is 
the Son of God. And from chapter 8, it moves all the way from there to the confession that the soldier says when he sees Jesus on the cross. And he says, surely this man was the Son of God. And so you may be saying to yourself, okay, Daniel, you've talked about chapter 8. You've talked about the end of the book. But yet we haven't seen any confession about Jesus being the Christ. But yet, just prior to the words that we have looked at this morning from Mark in the 8th chapter, we see, for the first time ever, a human being confess that Jesus is the Christ. Look with me at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30. Here we see that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Prior to this statement in the Gospel of Mark, the only beings that have declared that Jesus is the Christ have been the demons. But no human in all of history has yet declared that Jesus is the Christ until this moment in time and mark has intentionally structured his gospel to set out and to show us a great point that he is trying to prove that goes just beyond the words of the text and to understand that you have to understand the setting to where jesus and the disciples are in this moment jesus did most of his ministry around the area of galilee but we find out in this text that he has taken the disciples 25 miles on foot to go to Caesarea Philippi. Now, I don't know about you, but I would think it would be rather intentional that if you just set out on a 25-mile walk with a group of men, that you are doing it to prove a point. And Jesus is definitely trying to prove a point when he takes these men on this journey. Because the place to which he takes them and the place in which this takes place is the Temple of Pan. So Jesus takes these guys on a journey 25 miles by foot to the temple of Pan. And I've been to the temple of Pan. It's still there. It still exists today. And this is where all the Gentiles would come. They would worship various gods and goddesses, giving offering and sacrifice. And so in this place where people declare that there are all these gods and all these goddesses that exist in all the world, Make no mistake and do not misunderstand that Jesus very intentionally takes this group of men where people are saying all kind of things about all kinds of gods and goddesses, where people are saying all kind of things about him, declaring him to be, and he takes them and he asks them very directly, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ. But do not miss this also, that in Matthew chapter 16, Matthew gives us some details into the into this story that Mark does not give us. Because Jesus immediately responds to Peter in this, where he is also named Simon Bar-Jonah. And he says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So in the place where all of this worship is taking place, where all of these claims of of gods and goddesses in the world are happening, where all these other things are being worshipped, Jesus says that he is instituting his church through Peter, which we're going to pick back up at the end of the message, but he says the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. So in the face of where the Gentiles were worshiping multiple gods and goddesses, Jesus says his church will prevail even in the midst of people worshiping other things besides him. 
But do you find it at all curious, as I have many times when I have read this passage, that Jesus strictly charges them to tell no one about him? Why in the world, when for the first time the revelation is made that Jesus is the Christ to this group of disciples, would his response be, don't tell anybody? Now, I think it's very unfortunate that it seems that the church of today has taken this scripture to be obeyed literally. And, all right, here's my proof text that I don't have to tell anybody about Jesus anymore because Jesus said, don't tell anyone about me whatsoever. But no, that is not the intention of this text or your excuse to not share Jesus Christ with others. Deep inside the Gospel of Mark is something that scholars call the Messianic secret. Because throughout this Gospel, if you go back and read it, when Jesus does great things, he says repeatedly, do not go tell anybody what I've done for you. Do not go tell anybody what I've done. Now, a lot of people want to speculate and say, oh, that's because Jesus did not want crowds coming after him. He was busy and he didn't have time for all the crowds that were coming after him. But I want to... um, offer something for you in your consideration that goes much deeper than, than the crowds who were and who were not following Jesus. What I want to offer for you to consider this morning is that it is an incredibly dangerous thing to confess that Jesus is the Christ and not actually know what that means. That it is a very dangerous thing to confess that Jesus is the Christ and have an incredible misunderstanding of who he is and what he represents. And we are going to see that it is no mistake that immediately after this confession that Peter makes here in the gospel, his misunderstanding of the Messiah is going to get him in incredibly hot water with Jesus. You, you have to understand that when, when Peter made this confession that Jesus is the Messiah, that, that Jesus is the Christ, so it's the same word, one's Hebrew, one's Greek. When, when, when he makes this confession that Jesus is the Christ, Peter had a paradigm. He had a framework in his mind of what it meant to be the Christ. But it was only one side of the coin of what it actually meant to be the Christ. And you have to understand that not only did Peter believe this, but the entire Jewish nation and all Jewish culture believed this to be true about the Messiah. And it was that this Messiah was going to come as a conquering king. It was that this Messiah was going to come and to wipe out the enemies of Israel. If you're familiar at all with the the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds everyone up on the hillside, it says, that they go and they they try to storm Jesus and make him king by force. The only thing that they understood about the Messiah is that he would be this coming king. They read these triumphant texts from the Old Testament, these prophecies about this king who would come to, to eradicate his enemies. And if you look at the literature of Jesus' day from Jewish sources, when they spoke of the Messiah, the things they said were like this, that he would be endowed with miraculous powers. He would be mighty and wise in the Holy Spirit. The Messiah would be holy and free from sin the final anointed one and true king of Israel who would destroy God's enemies by the word of his mouth he would deliver Jerusalem from the Gentiles gather the faithful from dispersion and rule in justice and glory everything that they thought about the Messiah was only in the lens only in the view of him being the lion the lion of Judah him being the king If you've read the Gospels at all, you know that Jesus is often referred to as the son of David. Do you know why the Jewish people loved calling the Messiah the son of David? Because David kicked butt and took names everywhere he went. The reason they loved this title for the Messiah is because he slaughtered the enemies of God. He slaughtered the enemies of Israel. This is what they thought their coming and triumphant king was. But if that's all 
you know about Jesus, and that's all you think about Jesus, then you have totally misunderstood the Messiah. And it is because of this, Jesus says, do not go tell anybody. But just notice that is in this moment for now, not quite yet. See, what they did not understand was the suffering servant of Jesus. That nowhere in Jewish literature can you find Jesus described, the Messiah described, as a suffering servant. As a lamb led to the slaughter. But yet you can find those texts directly in the Old Testament. If you look at Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 12, you will see um, these words. That he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living? stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord, the will of Yahweh, to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This section in Isaiah, chapters 49 through 55, is often called the pre-gospel. That 750 years before the Son of God takes on flesh, Isaiah spoke exactly how he would live, what he would be like, how he would die, how he would suffer. This never made it into the minds of the Jewish people that this was their Messiah. Still to this day, if you go and you have an honest conversation with a Jewish person about, about these texts, they cannot see it. They cannot see that this passage is so clearly talking about Jesus. I mean, the details are there. He was put into a rich man's grave. The scriptures tell us he was buried in who? And, and we get the guy's name in the New Testament Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich man. I mean, all of these details given 750 years before of how he would die and how he would be crushed, and yet they cannot see. Their eyes are blinded to the reality because all they can see is the lion, the lion of Judah, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, this one who would eradicate their enemies. They cannot see the suffering servant who would pay for the sins of those he had created. It is this reason, their great misunderstanding about Jesus as the Messiah, why he warns them not to tell anyone. Because it is incredibly dangerous to confess that Jesus is who he says he is and not understand what that confession means. And let me show you just how dangerous it is. Because in the, in the Next set of verses, chapter 8, verses 31 through 33. In the very next scene, in the very next setting, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer 
many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Another way to say this in the Greek, he said this confidently, boldly. And Peter, the guy who's just confessed that he is the Christ, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I don't know what the greatest moment in your life is, and I don't know what the worst moment in your life is. But I find that it would, it would be very, very difficult to contrast the greatest moment in Peter's life, being the first one to whom it is revealed that Jesus is the Christ, to the very next scene being called Satan. Right? I mean, I don't know if there's any greater contrast and distinction in human history to having the privilege of seeing that Jesus is the Christ to being immediately called Satan just a few moments later. How dangerous must it be that, that Peter would make this confession but yet not fully understanding what it means. And this is why I want you to know that it's so important that you understand, that you truly know what it means if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Christ. Because whether you recognize it or not, and whether you feel the weight and pressure of it at all, you, you need to understand that eternity is at stake, not just in your confession of the Christ, but in your understanding of who Jesus is as the Christ. And as I have been in ministry over the last 20 years of my life, it, it is why I have great concern for so many people who call themselves Christians inside of this room and outside of this room. Because I have known so many people who with their mouths would openly and genuinely confess that Jesus is the Christ. But the question I have is, does their confession of the Christ match the reality of who he actually is? Because so many people will, will say, I mean, I was just reading some data for some research the other day, that 73% of all people in America still to this day call themselves Christians, meaning they would confess that Jesus is the Christ. But yet, when you ask them eight simple basic questions, like the most rudimentary basic questions about Jesus and Christianity, only 8% actually would have an orthodox confession of faith. So 92% of the people in this country do not know and understand what it means when they say that they are a Christian and that Jesus is the Christ. And so because of that, as a human being and as, as a pastor and as a follower of Jesus, I have great concern for each and every person that I meet because I want to get to the root of the issue because I want to make sure that your confession of the Christ is right and understood because Jesus has said in this passage, your soul is at stake in your understanding of who he is. That is why there are very dangerous confessions about people today the the most common confession about jesus today as the christ is that yes jesus is god but i confess him as god believing that he is going to fix my problems that he is going to just give me help when i need it that he is going to bless my life that that, that if i follow jesus my life will be generally better following jesus than it would be some other way and they look to Jesus as this genie that they can call upon when they're in need, when they're in trouble, and, and they can just ask him for help, and he will deliver this help. And because they have confessed with their mouth or asked Jesus into their heart that when, when they die, they will spend eternity with him. But yet Jesus says, says in Matthew chapter 7, 23 and 24, there will be many who say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, I never knew you. And that is why it is so important that we have a proper understanding of who 
Jesus is. Often we talk about the grace of God. We say that Jesus is the the primary example of the grace of God. A simple way to to remember grace and to to understand grace at a very basic level is this simple acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. That if we have received grace from God, that we have received God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace tells us that the Father did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life. The Father did not reckon His Son too dear a price to pay for our life. So therefore, the Son takes on flesh. He lives the life that we should have lived. He lives a righteous life, a holy life, a perfect life, a sinless life. Also, that He can go to the cross on our behalf. That He could offer His body, that He can offer His blood as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. He dies the death that we should have died. This is the gospel. When Mark says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, this is the point to which he is proved. So we get this big movement all the way to chapter 8 where Jesus is the Christ and we get the final confession of the centurion kneeling, kneeling before the cross at Jesus' death when he says, surely this man was the Son of God. The gospel of Mark has two major movements to set out that Jesus is the Christ and that he is the Son of God. But they are seen in His ruling power and glory, and they are seen in His death as well. This is why Jesus is the Lion and the Lamb. But you see, so many people just see Jesus as their Savior. So many people do this church thing in a way that, that, G, that they just want to be saved. They just want to be forgiven of their sins. They just want to know that, that after life is done, they are going to be in heaven one day because that's a much better alternative than hell. They want to be in heaven one day because they want to see their grandmother or their grandfather, their mom or their dad or their dog or for some reason a cat they may have lost along the way. Okay? But, but their ideas of heaven and getting to heaven are, are, are solely there. But there are many other things that are, that are prominent in heaven in their mind of why they want to be there besides being reconciled to their God and their King. And for people who just see Jesus as Savior, for people who would just see Him as a Messiah, There is a man who's coined a phrase, and I think he's the inventor of the phrase, cheap grace. If you don't know this man, I will just tell you, you should should put, again, anytime I preach, I'm going to give you a list of books you should read, or at least one book. The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. One of the most challenging books in all the world. If you want to wreck your soul, go right ahead. It is good. If you can bear up under its weight, more power to you. Because it will ruin you in the best way possible. He says to people who only accept Jesus as Savior, he says cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance. Cheap grace is baptism without church discipline. Cheap grace is communion without confession. It's absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. So many people ascribe to this view of grace in their version of Christianity that they confess Jesus as the Christ, yet it costs them nothing. They confess Jesus as the Christ, hoping it will grant them eternity in heaven, hoping along the way that God will bless them with a nice and comfortable life without too much heartache and pain. They want and expect nothing but blessing and favor from Jesus. This is an incredibly cheap misunderstanding of grace and the Messiah. 
The proper way is to see Jesus not just as Savior, but as Savior and Lord. Lord, Master over your life. This is why Paul says all the time, I consider myself to be a slave, a bondservant of Jesus. He says, though I am free, yet I am fully indebted to Jesus Christ because of what he has done for me. I owe him my life. He bought me. He paid the price for me. I owe him everything. And to this, Bonhoeffer says, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has got and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace, because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Can you say, as you sit in this room this morning, and you consider the words that Jesus has spoken, that you have properly counted the cost of grace? Because Jesus says, to properly count the cost of grace, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Some of you might be saying to yourself right now, this is not the way I planned on starting my new year. I was hoping it'd be a little lighter, a little fluffier, a little more New Year's resolutionally here at Aletheia Church this morning. And you might ask yourself, well, why, why do we preach heavy messages? Why do we preach weighty messages? Or if you just want to say it, le level it at me. Daniel, why do you preach such heavy and weighty messages? I'm okay with that as well. Why don't you give us more seven steps to a better semester? Why don't you tell me how I can graduate faster and get there quicker and honor God along the way? Why aren't you guys a little more entertaining sometimes? And I'll tell you why. At least from my own personal being. Because over the course of my life, having grown up in church culture, I know one too many people who have confessed Jesus as the Christ with their mouth, but have not had a proper understanding of who he is and what following him actually costs. It's not just people outside the church who don't understand this, but it's people who have been to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night. They've been to every discipleship now. They've been to every BCM meeting. They've been to every crew meeting. And they still don't get it. Their misunderstanding about Jesus is greatly skewed. And I'll just say sometimes it takes a long time before it shows itself to be evident in your life. But eventually it does. And I didn't move all the way across the country from Seattle here 
not make sure that you heard and understood who Jesus is and what it means to follow him and the great cost that he paid and how, great, how costly grace actually is. Because you never know who you're going to run into this semester. You never know who you're going to hang out with in your life here at the school, in your time here, who won't know Christ, but also will confess to know Christ, who many years down the road after their confession, you will see that Christ was never in their lives at all, but yet you saw them as a shining example. And maybe you would have had the opportunity, if you would have invested more time in them, to, to explain to them and make sure they had a proper understanding of who Jesus is so that one day they would not walk away. And I tell this story out of, a, out of a personal story of sometimes it's those that you would never think could be that person. For at one point in time, while I was a missionary in West Africa, I was teammates with a girl who grew up in church every Sunday, who had prayed the prayer, who had asked Jesus into her heart, who went to a private Christian college and eventually became a missionary and was my teammate. This young lady went on trips with me to the deepest, darkest parts of Africa to tell people about Jesus who had never heard his name before. But once that young lady got back in America, and once she kept pursuing higher and higher and higher education, and I do not blame higher education for this, we began to see cracks in the armor. We began to see her move into places and we began to see her Facebook feed begin to be filled with things that, that were not of the things of Christ. We saw her get involved in a relationship and, and moving with her boyfriend and yet when confronted and when called out and when had conversations about among those of us who were her teammates, there was deadness in her heart toward the things of Jesus for she cared no longer for the things of Jesus. And over the last 10 years, there seems to be no life in her that would draw her to Jesus. Now, you will have to draw your own conclusions about the salvation of her soul. But I ask, how long and how far can a person run with having no conviction in their heart and their life to the things of God? How cheap must she consider the grace of Christ to be that she no longer considers it necessary to follow, that she has abandoned everything that she once proclaimed to live a life that she wants to live. She is no longer counting the cost. She has no longer taken up her cross. She has no longer followed Jesus. My great fear for her is that on that day she will say, Lord, Lord, did I not pray a prayer in church? Did I not ask Jesus into my heart? Did I not go to the mission field? And my great fear is that one day Jesus will say to her, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Now, if I remember correctly from being a college student, a lot of times what happens is you're doing pretty good with this Jesus thing, and you go home over the semester and you get away from your church family and your church friends and you find yourself falling back into patterns and lifestyles that you've sworn for the hundredth time you've walked away from. And that you weren't going to do that again and you weren't going to hang out with those people again and you weren't going to find yourself in this sin again. So whether that's just as a college student in life, for the rest of your life you are going to find yourself in repeated sin going back to sins that you swore you would never go back to. You are going to find yourself doing things as dumb as Peter did when having just confessed Jesus as the Christ, he gets called Satan, right? And I want to say, P Peter is the shining example for us. If you need a hero outside of Jesus, let it be Peter. You know, Paul, I have a hard time identifying with a lot of times, right? I mean, like Paul was like type A driven, kind of insane, like all of Jesus all the time. I mean, like you talk like Paul, like, hey, dude, 
we're going to throw you in prison. It's like, no problem, I'll convert your guards. Hey, dude, you know, we're going to kill you. No problem to, to live as Christ, to die as gain, right? I mean, like, you just couldn't, you couldn't mess with Paul. Like, you just could not, you know, he got beaten, he got lashed, he got whipped, he got shit. I mean, everything bad happened to Paul. It's like, you know, I'll be just be content in everything. Jesus is enough for me. Peter, I can relate to. Why? Because Peter says and does some of the dumbest things in all the Bible. But over and over and over, he just goes back to Jesus. And each and every time, Jesus welcomes him back in. I mean, think about it. The guy who gets it revealed to him that Jesus is the Christ immediately gets called Satan. And in Matthew, we're told, this is the dude who's the first leader of the church. Like, Peter's the first leader of the church. Peter is the leader of the disciples. Jesus puts the keys to the church in his hand and then immediately calls him Satan. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. A few scenes later, Peter's going to brag and boast and say, Jesus, I would never, I would never leave you. I would never abandon you. And Jesus is like, shut your hole, Peter. You're going to deny me three times in a few minutes. And what does he do? Before the, before the next day's even over, three times. Nope, I don't know Jesus. Never heard of him. Never met the guy. Never seen him. Don't know. I, I'm, just, I'm just here in town to figure out what all this commotion is going on. Don't know the guy at all. The rooster crows, and Peter goes out wailing and weeping, knowing that he has denied his master. To this, after his resurrection, Jesus calls to Peter. Or Peter sees Jesus on the shore from the boat. And he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, Jesus, you know I love you. Peter, go feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Jesus, you know I love you. Peter, go feed my lambs. And for the third time, in a full restoration of the three times that he denied Jesus, he says to Peter, do you love me? He says, Jesus, you know I do. He says, go feed my sheep. Do you see the difference? Peter did not understand that Jesus was the Messiah when he first confessed it. But as he grew to know Christ, as he grew in his understanding, and he saw him in his full revelation as king, as conqueror, as suffering servant, it radically changed Peter for the rest of his life. You need to know that beginning next week, we're going to walk through 1 Peter this semester. The death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus had such a powerful impact on Peter that at the end of his life, when Peter went to die, when the Roman government finally caught up to Peter, they told him he was going to die like Jesus and they were going to crucify him. Jesus said to those soldiers, please crucify me upside down, for I do not deserve to die like See, it's, it's not about how many times you mess up or you don't mess up. But it's can you see in your life a pattern that when you mess up, you find yourselves running to the cross, throwing yourselves at the cross, going to that same, that same grace that was extended to you the very first time you confessed Jesus to Christ. Do you go to that very same grace and fall at the feet of Jesus. For this is what it looks like to follow Jesus, is to repetitively and continually for the rest of your life set your face toward him. To say, God, whatever you want for the rest of my life, it is yours. You are my maker. You are my sustainer. You are the one to whom all things are due, and my life is yours. Though I have messed up X, Y, Z for however long, I will come back to you 
and that mercy and that grace will be extended to you. Can you say that you see that pattern in your life? Can you say that you have surrendered all to follow Jesus? For Jesus says the settling of this matter, eternity is at hand. For whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. At this point, I'm going to go ahead and invite the, um, the band back up. I'm also going to ask, um, let's see, Brent's there, Stephen and Myra and Leah, if you'll, if you'll come on up. Um, Matt and Laura, if you'll just kind of hang out at, at the back. Um, something we do here, or at least I normally do here when I preach, is, um, is just offer a time of, of response. I, I think it is incredibly important that we realize that, that when we come to these moments, these, this, this section of time that we have is not just a, hey, I knocked my 90 minutes out of, you know, of Christianity for the week here on a Sunday morning, but that under the sovereign hand of a gracious and loving God, he has brought you to this place and allowed you to be in this place in this morning. And we don't want you to leave without having received everything that God has for you this morning through the power of his spirit and through the preaching of his word and through the words that we sing to him on the screen. And so um, there'll be two opportunities for you this morning. Um, <coughs> one is to is to confess your sin for the first time, to confess Jesus as the Messiah for the first time, and to speak with someone about what it means to follow Jesus. And we create this for you because if there's any question in your mind, like we just want to have a conversation with you. We will not shame you. We will not guilt you in any way, shape, sh sh shape or form. Um, we just want to have the conversation with you to make sure that you are in right standing with God. But also, if you know you're in right standing, you may, over the last bit of time, because we've all kind of been away, there may have been some sin that's crept into your heart and to your life. And there's just some sin that you want to confess. And there are just some things you would like us to pray for over your life. Um, and maybe you're the rare person who, nope, you don't have any sin problems in your life. You would just like and help with the semester that's going to be trying and coming up. We want to pray for that over you as well. And so as they begin to play, um, I know it's a little nerve-wracking to be the first one to stand up, but there's two people at the back. There'll be four of us up here that if you would just like to, um, to, to have any prayer or confession at this point in time, you can come. And if not, please know that communion is also open for you, for anyone who is a follower of Jesus to receive his body that was broken and his blood that was shed.